Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, taxing you for working from home, mandatory masks, and the death of academic freedom. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Welcome to The Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. Hope you are having a wonderful Canada Day, or as we prefer to call it, Dominion Day. No point in changing the name of something on account of trying to make it sound like a big sale event at your local superstore. Uh, Dominion Day, the original name, that's how we know it here. Then again, I'm also still, as I mentioned on Monday, uh, missing the Red Ensign. So uh, <laughs> you'll have to accept if I'm a little bit outdated as far as what the uh, the new patriotic symbol and uh, and slogans are for Canada. But regardless, hope you're enjoying a bit of day off time with the family, especially in light of what's happened in this country in the last few months and, and around the world. Uh, one thing that is a bit of a warning, if you've been working from home, as I know so many have in the pandemic and you live in Calgary, the city of Calgary is looking to tax you just because you work from home. So just to put this in context, well, everyone around the world is saying, how do we deal with the economic effects and implications of coronavirus, of COVID-19? The city of Calgary is saying, I've got an idea. So all these people that have to work from home, hit them with a tax. This comes in a report that was published by Calgary's Financial Task Force, which is anytime government has a task force, you know, it's never going to be all that good. And they have this idea of bringing property taxation into the 21st century. Now, again, they, they mean how to raise it. That's exactly what they mean. Because they say here, revenue sources for Canadian municipalities are limited. So they're trying to find ways that they can grow uh, different revenue potential. And they, they take a few pages to try to beat around the bush until they eventually say that they need to modernize and adapt and do all of this and, and find municipal revenue opportunities available through the digital economy. And you scroll down way, way, way down, way, way, way down, and you get to the very bottom, the last paragraph of the last recommendation of the last page of this section. The City of Calgary's task force recommends develop and implement attacks on home-based small businesses that would become more prevalent due to the transition to the new economy consider a different tax rate if a home is used as an office but address the trend towards increased homework so right now the big discussion everyone's having is whether people should continue to work from home which means more home offices and you might save a bit of money on gas on parking on uh, work-life balance uh, may improve uh, but don't worry government will find a way to screw it up uh, because calgary wants to do a home office tax like this is absurd to me because if you own your home, you pay your property tax, you're paying your water, your hydro, uh, it's not even like the city is giving you more for the privilege of staying home. They just realize that, hey, commercial real estate, which by the way is already in a, a terrible situation in Calgary, uh, just take a look at Candace Malcolm's documentary with True North, Calgary in Crisis, uh, but they're saying that, oh, well, you know, we're going to have fewer corporate tenants, uh, we need to get some of this money back elsewhere. Uh, oh yeah, you run a home daycare? Boom, more property taxes. You write blog posts from home, more property taxes. You do a podcast, 
We're not in Calgary, Nancy. You can't come after us here. Uh, but never, never doubt government's way to, at the worst time, put the worst possible proposal forward and unfortunately probably still get away from it. Although, oddly, not the weirdest proposal or the worst proposal to come from a city council this week. Uh, Toronto has decided to mandate masks indoors. Uh, city council voted to make uh, masks mandatory throughout the coronavirus pandemic. And the goal here is that uh, indoor public spaces must have people wearing these face coverings so that we can prevent a second, third, 17th wave, wherever is, uh, wherever's coming next. And, you know, the thing about this that I, I have to point out here, and, and we talked about this going back to, I think, February, we have gone from masks are dangerous, don't wear masks, to, ah, well, okay, I guess if you really want to, you can wear a mask if it's going to make you feel better, to, okay, all right, fine, uh, you know, wear a mask, to, all right, we're going to shame you if you don't, to now we're going to prosecute you. So in just three months, we've gone from masks are terrible, don't you dare wear a mask, to uh, we're going to fine you up to $1,000 if you are indoors in Toronto and not wearing a mask. Now, this may not, in fact, be constitutional. The uh, Canadian Constitution Foundation has put out a statement raising concerns about it. They think that uh, communities with mask orders are violating charter rights. Uh, Guelph was the first one to do it. I think that was uh, last week or so. And now that Toronto has, I wouldn't be surprised if other communities started to follow suit. So this is going to be pretty bad. Now, I'm not anti-mask, by the way. I mean, in my city, there aren't a lot of cases. I don't go out all that much. I wore a mask once, and that was when I was required to do it to get my hair cut. And in that case, the businesses said this is the rule. If a business says you must wear a mask to shop here, I'm going to respect their right to do that, and I'll make a decision accordingly. But mandating masks, which is what city councils have done uh, is is really bad right now for two reasons. First off, because it just shows that no one knows anything. Everyone's making it up as they go along. Uh, when Teresa Tam was saying, don't wear a mask, and we were told to listen because she's the expert, why are they any more correct now when they say, oh, you've got to wear a mask? And, and look, I, no denying masks were very helpful in places like Taiwan, uh, in Hong Kong, and South Korea. Masks were how they prevented getting these massive waves initially. But when in Canada, they're just coming around to it months after the fact, it reeks of just being this, you know, attempt at grasping at straws, an attempt to say that we know what's going on. And I'm not one of these people that thinks a mask is a symbol of control. I was actually very pro-mask earlier on, and I wish the government had taken it seriously when it was important, when we were still waiting for that curve to be so-called flattened. But now the curve is flattened, the curve has gone away, the curve is not actually a curve, the curve is just a flat line, and we're still dealing with stuff like this. So the, the idea of this becoming a permanent lockdown now is what it seems like we're headed towards. So John Tory says everyone in Toronto needs a mask. Well, just this week, the travel ban for Canada was extended another month until July 31st. The longer this goes on, the more people's patience will wear down. And at a certain point, you have to ask, what is it that we're waiting for? What is it that we're waiting for when communities across the country are, are finding that things are under control, things are fine? Uh, why is it only three and a half months after the fact 
that these discussions are taking place when it starts to seem like things are, are on the right track. So look, wear a mask, don't wear a mask. I'm not going to publicly shame anyone one way or another. I'm going to support businesses making their own determination. But for city council, after their own medical officers and the Canadian medical officers of health were saying, uh, don't use masks for the longest time, I'm just going to roll my eyes and you'll be able to see it because right now I'm not wearing a mask. When we come back, we'll talk about free speech and academic inquiry with David Millard Haskell. That's all up next on The Andrew Lawton Show. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. The big cultural battle of the month is, will you admit that whatever institution or country you preside over is systemically racist? Whether it's the RCMP, a political party, Canada itself, universities, companies, uh, everyone has to say that everything is systemically racist. And if you don't, you are just proving it and that makes you a racist. This is the theme we've been talking about the last couple of shows and, and more and more examples keep emerging of it. While the latest on the list is Laurier University, which the professor and president, Deborah McClatchy, recognizes has systemic racism on the campus. She has said in a letter to the Laurier community that Laurier needs to tackle its systemic racism in the school and across the country. And as such, Laurier has put forward an action plan for equity, diversity, and inclusion, and indigeneity. Now, there may be nothing wrong with some of the specific proposals that are called for, but it's based on something that has an action been defined or established, which is, is Laurier actually systemically racist? And what does that mean? Well, only a little bit of pushback. Two professors, David Millard Haskell and William McNally, wrote an open letter saying, well, hang on, you haven't defined it, you haven't given any evidence, and what you're calling for has much broader implications than what you say it's about. Uh, This letter, of course, uh, making waves because, uh, well, like I said, if you deny systemic racism, you're part of the problem. Fantastic letter. It is published online at SAFS, the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarships website, SAFS.ca. One of the co-authors, Professor David Millard Haskell, joins me on the line now. Uh, David, good to talk to you. Thanks very much for coming on today. It's my pleasure, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Now, it's not to say you've been a, a shrinking violet from the free speech fight in general, certainly not at Laurier University. You were front and center when the Lindsay Shepard controversy happened a, a couple of years back, and, and you've continued to stand up for free speech. But on, on this issue specifically, why did you decide to to stick your neck out, especially in this climate where everyone's getting canceled, and, and put some uh, you know criticism and, and scrutiny on this uh, approach from your school's president? Well... You know, you have to choose your battles, and uh, both Will and I have been really concerned about the drift within academia more generally, but uh, also the drift within our own university, where empirical evidence is no longer being used in order to justify policies and messaging, and it seems that ideological, uh, ideological conclusions are driving what is happening. And these ideological conclusions aren't based on good evidence. So this was an example of this where our our president said that there was, she made the suggestion that systemic racism was on our campus. And not only that, she had an action plan to combat it. And uh, we just, we had to say, stop for a moment. Uh, You're not basing this on evidence. And, and so I think that there's a subtlety there even. We're saying uh, we're, 
we're looking for your justification for the claim. We're not even saying your claim is wrong at this point, although the evidence that we've found would suggest it is. But what we want, what we want as a university, as a place that uh, makes its living trying to advance knowledge, we we want to see the evidence. We want to talk about the evidence, and um, so. It, it was just standing up for the principle, the principles that are supposed to be the very lifeblood of a university that made us want to respond. One of the points you and Professor McNally raised in your letter, which should have been a, an obvious one, it should have been the very first thing that something like this would have addressed, is the lack of a definition of systemic racism or, or of racism in general. And, and look, people may in their own minds know what racism is by way of example. Systemic racism is a bit more complex and I, I think has a lot more baggage and loading of that term, if I may. And there's no definition of it. Uh, McClatchy has said, yes, the school is systemically racist, but this did not come with a, an explanation as to how. And, and you point that out in your letter, which again, and I'm not downplaying what you're saying here, it should have been an obvious question that you raised, but no one else was. And, and the irony here in the logic, Andrew, is that part of her action plan specifically says we need to define racism. So she's admitted right there, we don't have a definition. And yet she said earlier in this other missive that we're systemically racist. So that's the cart before the horse. This isn't how you work the scientific method. And my worry is there, there was language within her email that was referencing uh, critical race theory, which is um, an offshoot of critical theory more generally. And, and it has a lot of really uh, anti-academic ideas behind it. Uh, they, they suggest things like even empirical evidence is really promoting whiteness or white oppression and, and this is right in the works of critical race theorists. And, and when you're saying that empirical evidence is oppression, what else do we have? What, what else do we have that we've been using since the Enlightenment to actually try and get away from issues of bias, but instead try and advance just neutral knowledge? Uh, so with systemic racism, what I'm, what I'm worrying about is that it doesn't look like racism as we were taught, right? Racism, when, when we were younger, we were taught that if you say something that is negative about someone's skin color or about someone because of their skin color, if you had words or actions that were directly discriminatory related to someone's skin color, that's racism. And all of us agree, that's terrible. It's sickening. And we should stand against it. But systemic racism, it's this different thing. And as I read the literature, and, and I, I read, we'll talk maybe about the single study that uh, Dr. McClatchy used to justify this entire action plan. Yeah, the being raced study. I the was going to ask, ask about that. So tell me why that's uh, such a dangerous part of this. Well, because it's, it, it in fact explicitly says we're using critical race theory as the underpinnings for the study. And the idea of systemic racism, as it is applied within critical race theory, is that any disparity, any disparity where, where black people, people of color or other people of color are at a disadvantage, where it negatively, the numbers are negatively against them, that in and of itself is racism. 
Well, that's the fallacy of saying that correlation equals causation. And every researcher knows you don't do that. And yet here we have a university promoting this idea, this very anti-intellectual idea. So it, it's worrying. It's worrying when the keepers of knowledge abandon their job. Yeah, and that's one of the big things. And I know this is not an academic point that I'm about to address here. But when we saw last week, for example, the RCMP commissioner, Brenda Lucky, say the RCMP is systemically racist and, and failed to come up with a, an explanation for how she's reached that and, uh, you know, ended up passing the question off somewhere else. There's something that we see right now in this culture. And I know we're going to talk a little bit more about some of these broader uh, issues, but where people are, are committed to the outcome before they even go through that process. So that's no different than uh, McClatchy saying that, yes, we're systemically racist. And, and one of the things we're going to do is come up with a definition of what racism means. It, it's like they know that this is the right thing to say or the, the so-called woke thing to say. And, and whatever other processes they need to go through to get to that point, they're going to go through. But they've already determined that's where they're going with it. Right. And it short circuits what actually is the scientific method, mm -hmm. because we, we want to test and retest. And so what actually happens when you begin to investigate this notion of systemic racism? So if, if you're listening to people talk about systemic racism, especially in the context of the George Floyd death, they often talk about it in terms of policing. Mm -hmm. But Will and I, we in our letter even, we said the best empirical evidence shows that really the shooting of black people is not racially motivated. We've got uh, Roland Fryer at Harvard has done studies from 2018, some of the most current work we have, that shows there is not evidence of this, uh, this racial motivation. Another fella at uh, Michigan State University from 2019, Joseph Cesaro, so, uh, I, I think I'm getting his name right, but, but he did a nationwide wide study. And he said, listen, it's, it's a fact that a black man in America is more apt to be shot by a black police officer than a white police officer. There just isn't proof that this is racially motivated. So I look at that and I say, I want to know if there is some kind of racism happening. And let's stick with the police. I want to know about it so we can fix it. But these claims that are not based on evidence aren't getting us anywhere. What, well, they, they're getting us into a very dangerous place, a place that is not based on evidence, but it's based on a lot of, uh, of thoughts about doing things that are, are pretty hostile. And you point out in your letter something here. If this research was presented in class, it might be perceived as, quote, invalidating racialized people's experience of racism, unquote. Now, I should say, I haven't read Fryer's research. It could be that there's a, a scientific uh, point to be debated there that you could, uh, you know, take aim through the scientific method at his findings, his methodology, whatever uh, else you'd like. Uh, but you raise a, a point there that I don't think anyone can disagree, that there would be lots of people lined up, including at academic institutions, institutions to have the discussion of that research taken off the table because of how it might make people feel. And thanks for bringing that up, because really, you, you've hit the nail on the head. This is what we're, we're really concerned about. So the implications of what our 
president was saying, and also the study that she cites. The study itself, it was called Being Raced. It was produced by some undergraduate students under the tutelage of some mentors who were professors and also people from the Diversity and Equity Office. And the study itself, uh, it's a phenomenological study. It, it's not, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a properly chosen sample in order to generalize from it. It was also um, of the sort that said anything that our participants say is racism, we are going to not question it. And that's fine for lived experience, but that's not fine when you're going to generate policy. So uh, back to this, this notion about what that study also said, that study made some claims that said from their perspective, if, if a professor, they called it a faculty perpetrator, if a professor were to quote from a study that went against the, the lived experience of a student, and even if, that, if, even if the professor is quoting peer-reviewed excellent research, but it's going against the, the lived experience of the student in the classroom, that's racism. Well, suddenly, you can't quote those studies. And we have to, as an institution, realize that we're going to say things that make people uncomfortable. That's what happens in a democracy. That's what happens in, in should happen in a university where academic freedom is present. Now, I'm all for being civil, but absolutely we cannot stop talking about facts simply because they make people uncomfortable. We are having a, a little bit of a, a technical glitch here. We were able to solve one, but we created another. So we, we've switched over to uh, the phone now. Uh, David Haskell, thanks for uh, sticking with us here. The uh, this recording system has already decided to take a, an early Canada Day holiday here. Uh, we were talking, though, uh, about you know a lot of the, I'll say frankly, shoddy research or non-existent research that, that's going into a lot of these declarations. And, and I appreciate something you mentioned earlier, which is to say that you're not even discounting that racism or systemic racism exists on campus. You're saying that th there is no basis for the school's president to make those claims. I, and I wanted to ask you, because I thought that, you know, there was a, a bit of a glimmer of hope a couple of years back when Lindsay Shepard, I, I think, exposed a lot of what was going on. And uh, you were, were front and center on that battle, as was your co-author of this letter, uh, Dr. McNally. And, and we fast forward to uh, the present time, and, and it seems like, you know, any step you took forward was met with, with two or or three steps back. So how do you think that the campus by and large uh, is responding to this sort of thing? Because when, when you're making a claim that a, a school community is systemically racist, you're, you're basically saying that everyone who is responsible for making up that campus isn't somehow uh, in some way complicit in racism. Yeah, well, that, that is the implication there. And it is, again, that's, a, that's an incredibly pejorative thing to say about a campus without having quantitative empirical data to back it up. And, and my worry, and you were drawing in the history about where Laurier has been and, and how in the Lindsay Shepherd affair, our administration and certain members of faculty were challenged and, and they were challenged uh, by, uh, by Lindsay, first of all, saying, you're saying things that aren't true. For example, the professor said to her that by airing a, a video that it appeared on public TV, she'd actually committed a hate crime, which wasn't true. Again, here we have 
claims that just are not based in empirical fact. So here we have another case uh, just last week or two weeks ago when the president of the university says we've got systemic racism on campus, creates a plan. I don't know why professors, we've got 550 full-time professors at Laurier, and they're supposed to be, most of them, expert in research methodology. Why did they not look at the letter in the same way that Will McNally and I did and said, this is just not good scholarship. This is just not empirically backed claims. So we, we've got, this is worrying because when professors are willing to let unjustified claims be presented as fact, the university as an institution is worthless. Only two professors, Will and I, questioned the administration's claim of systemic racism on, on campus in the absence of a clear definition. There wasn't even a definition. And in the absence of empirical evidence, where are the other professors? Yeah, and that's the, the big problem here. I mean, it used to be not so long ago when academic freedom arose that there was, for the most part, I, I'd say, uh, enough of, not even a, a collegi collegiality, but enough of a self-awareness that professors would recognize, hey, even if I don't like the work that Haskell's doing over there, uh, I know that if, if I condemn that, it could just as easily be me that's condemned next time around. And and now that's not there. I, I mean, Western University, for example, where, where I went here in London, Ontario, uh, they've now posthumously apologized for the work of one professor, Philippe Rushton, and, and you know, controversial or not, the idea that uh, schools that used to protect uh, tenure and academic freedom and academic inquiry and all of these things are now going uh, quite brazenly in the other direction, uh, which is to say, not just saying, hey, you know what, we think that, you know, someone should challenge this research, but saying you don't have a right to pursue this or, or you don't have a right to champion uh, this line of questioning. Right, and, and it has far-reaching implications. Uh, you wonder, if a professor or a group of professors, if faculty at a university are willing to say, These, this empirical data, this factual material cannot be published, so th and they're attacking their own fellow professors, then... What are they not willing to tell their students in the classroom? Is it only politically correct messages that our students are going to be hearing? Only, only messages that our professors think are agreeable? Because if that's the case, why go to university? If you're actually not going to get what might be the most compelling research, the most, the most uh, methodologically sound research, on the chance that it upset someone, well, then university just is worthless. Where do you think this goes from goes from here? Because I, I do feel like. At a certain point, I mean, we see in the social justice world a lot of cannibalization on the left sometimes. People that have been uh, able to check off all the boxes of being an ally to this group, to this group, to this group. They make one wrong step and, and boom, the mob turns on them. Uh, do you think in academia the same sort of thing will happen in, in such a way that there's enough time for a collective pushback? Perhaps some of the people that have been adding fuel uh, to these fires saying, you know what, we, we may have gone a bit too far. Do you think that ship has sailed? I really think 
the sadly the, the ship has failed. Um, I there there just is not the will on campus to push back against this. Again, just using the Laurier example, there are 550 full-time professors who would have seen there was no empirical evidence to back the president's claims. And only two professors challenged it. And here's the other thing. Apart from um, uh, a media outlet in the United States, you are the only news organization who's thought that this was important. Wow. Even the media, and we've alerted media. And, and if you can't get the message out, there's just not the will. The media doesn't want to talk about it, that we have this crisis in education where empirical uh, evidence is being suppressed. And then we've got the crisis in ac- academia itself. And uh, where, do, where does it go from here? It will get worse. And what we continue to see is that the progressives, and I'm using that term not in a favorable way, the, the left, the far left, who have, have taken over universities. And by that, I, 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 this is an empirical fact as well. Um, Joel Inberg did a study to see uh, what percentage, and others, by the way, I, I, he's the only one that comes to mind, what percentage of, of university professors in North America uh, are conservative leaning or libertarian or classical liberal and it's about six percent and dwindling and and when asked uh, when he asked the people who are self identified progressive or liberal, um, would you not hire would you purposely sink a candidate if you found out they were conservative twenty five percent said yes, and that was just the twenty five percent who were willing to say yes because that's something you don't want to admit to. The trouble is we've lost the universities or the reality is we've lost the universities. And, and when nobody is there to be the counterpoint, when you don't have professors who have a different set of ideas, then you've got a monolith. And so the urge is to just get more of the same and, and power corrupts. Absolutely. We know this. So we'll continue to see the, these linguistic traps. And by that, what they'll do is they'll corrupt the definition of a word. This is the thing that they're doing just incessantly now, repeatedly now. They corrupt the definition of, the, of a word. They take a word like racism that had meaning, and they be, it becomes systemic racism. And it doesn't mean what you thought it used to mean. Now it means if there's a disparity, if there's a difference in numbers, then suddenly that implies racism. So they do this and they've done it with things like, uh, well, uh, I, I can't be, I wrote a paper called words lose their meaning at Wilfrid Laurier. So rather than rehash that, I just, I'd uh, say to the listeners, take a look at that and, and you'll see the numerous examples where, where this has happened, but it's a linguistic trap and, um, and it's going to get worse. Yeah, and I think those wording things are important because you never want to get bogged down in semantics, but a lot of the time when you seed the language, 
uh, you end up ceding a part of the battle. And and I think the the racist thing is a, a great example of this because you know a, a lot of people on the right, certainly those who who work in new media, are, are used to being called racist. I mean, this word that used to carry a lot of weight now is you know like you know cookie or the word and like it's just it's said and you don't really think of it now but it does still to people that aren't in that world have a lot of meaning and when you put that qualifier on uh, systemic uh, it means something even more and you know systemic racism ergo requires systemic change so before people have even to go back full circle to how we started here before uh, people have even established what that meant we're already three steps ahead on the action plan that's right without the definition of racism itself and uh, we see this, this linguistic trap that then makes you not even, you cannot question it, right? That's part of the linguistic trap. So now if I say, well, I'd like to see the evidence for systemic racism on campus, suddenly I'm a racist. And this, this is a really clever linguistic trap because it means the other side never has to prove it. Never yeah, and you, by virtue of evidence. asking that, prove that the system is racist, because only a racist system would allow such questions. Exactly. Uh, similarly, we, we've seen what's happened with white supremacy. The, the, the word, the word, it, it used to mean people who belonged to the KKK, really despicable people. But it now means every Judeo-Christian value and all Western thought. You know, as it's used by people who are promoting critical race theory, that now is white supremacy. And if if that's white supremacy, what they're really looking for is to destroy society as we know it. Well, even if it is just two of over 500 professors speaking up, I am so very grateful uh, you two are there. Uh, David Haskell, David Millard Haskell, professor at Laurier University, a fantastic letter written alongside uh, fellow professor William McNally. Uh, David, thank you so much for, for coming on today. Really great talking to you as always. Yeah, it's really appreciated. Sorry about the glitches. Yeah, no worries. It happens. Well, nothing's going to shut us up, right? <laughs> Hopefully no. That was David Millard Haskell, former People's Party of Canada candidate for Cambridge and current Laurier University professor. My thanks to David for coming on and also all of you for tuning into the show. Hope you have a very happy Dominion Day or Canada Day, whichever you call it. I hope it's Dominion Day, but regardless, I hope you enjoy it. We will talk to you next week. Thank you. God bless and good day, Canada. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.